This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. We pray that your spirit will work in us, that we may hear and understand your word explained, and that we may respond rightly with our hearts and with our lives. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Now, Christmas is coming, a special occasion celebrated by many in our world. In fact, the world celebrates Christmas earlier than the churches. You know, the fake pine trees that kind of sprout everywhere, the music blasting through the uh, shopping centers, the Christmas sales catalog that stuff your letterbox, and you can't find your letters because they're all catalogs. Uh, it announces the arrival of Christmas. In fact, sometimes all of these things announce it earlier than the church bulletin because that's the best time to squeeze a bit of commercial dollars out of all of us because that is the, the day or the, the season of good feelings. You know, in developed or non-religious countries, most would love Christmas because it, it conjures up the feeling of hope, rest, peace, gift-giving, love, healing, a better future than the present year. Now, the Christmas, Christmas ambience, whether Christians or not, tries to emit the, the feel-good uh, emotions. Now, in fact, the year-end Christmas season, it often projects some kind of hope for a better or perfect world ahead that this year has not provided. But what does a better world actually Look like, or if we just take a step further, what does a perfect world actually look like? Under this man called Sir Thomas More, who famously wrote the book Utopia a few centuries ago, he defines this. Um, he wrote, imaginary and ideal world that consists of an ideal society possessing a kind of social and political and legal system that's perfect. So, so for Sir Thomas More, he says, a perfect system, that's when the perfect world comes in. Well, for, for the rest of us, probably Michael Jackson would just sing it to us, right? That the perfect world is when we love, and by that, we can heal the world, we can make it a better place for you, for me, for the entire human race, right? The longing for a perfect world actually resonates with many individuals. In fact, all of us. The longing for healing, no more violence, bullying, wars, murder, hatred, hunger, no dying children, no cancer, only world peace. So there's another kind of perfect world, no more pain, no more suffering. But you know what? The harsh reality of our world is that it is not perfect and we are not having world peace. The one lady on the web, she responded to this question, what is the perfect world to you? And she replied, the perfect world is to be away from the world that I'm in now. That is a reality for many. So what does a perfect world or perhaps a perfect kingdom look like? Is it even possible? Well, actually, Christmas is just the right time to consider and reflect on a hope for a perfect world because that is what Christmas is offering. To point to a perfect world that will be possible by the birth of a child on that first Christmas, a child who was promised to be a perfect king, and through his perfect kingship will come a perfect kingdom or a perfect world, whichever you like to call it. 
And this perfect king will start to gather a perfect gathering of people to share and enjoy this perfect world that he has bring forth. So with this as kind of the background, um, we're going to look at today's passage. Today's passage is a prequel to the first Christmas, written about 700 years before the Christmas day. It explains who this child will be, what he will do, and what he must, what must happen to him in order to bring in a perfect world. So come with me, look at the passage of Isaiah chapter 11. This is the background of chapter 11. In fact, the whole Isaiah is about 8th century BC at a time where actually there's no peace. In the Middle East, God's judgment was heavy upon the people called Israel and Judah. For the people had turned away from God, dark stormy clouds kind of loom over them, not very different from what we experienced for the last few decades. There is war, disaster, threats, loss of home, loss of lives, and this will become their staple. Yet, with this looming over the nations, the leaders of God's people refuse to lead the people back to God. The kings have turned people away from God, the priests are more interested in political religion than true worship. And the false prophets are declaring false peace when there's no peace. At this time of the looming judgment, God's prophet Isaiah came into the scene. He first prophesied judgment, which is the earlier chapters, and somewhat later on Isaiah. And then he says, no, in fact, the judgment will come such that the throne of King David, the, tr- the kingdom they had, the temple they built, they all kind of be captured or destroyed by the enemies because of sin. But then when all of these things happened, after all judgments have been put upon the people, when all sin lost, when hope becomes a mere myth, I don't know if you have ever felt that, when, when hope is a mere myth to you, Isaiah says God will suddenly bring in a perfect king who will establish a perfect kingdom and will gather will have a perfect way of gathering people to himself from all over the world. And so this is the prophecy, Isaiah 11 verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Now who is Jesse? Jesse was the father of Israel and Judah's greatest king, King David. So when judgment is over, Isaiah says, Israel and Judah will look like an aftermath of a forest fire. The big tree uh, is left with just a stump. But at that point, it will grow from it a green shoot, a fruit-bearing branch. And the throne of God's king will begin to establish This tree that has been as good as dead will bring forth new life in a dead world. So the first hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, if you're there 800 BC, uh, 8th century BC, uh, you start to immediately identify what is this stump of Jesse that Isaiah is talking about. Because from their records and from their history, they know that the stump of Jesse is actually referring to a promised king that God has given, that will come forth from the line of David. It was given in 2 Daniel 7. He will rule forever. Unlike the King David, who, who loves God, and who's, who, who loves God, but he is an imperfect king. And unlike all the kings after David, who couldn't do no better, this king will be a perfect one, 
and he will rule perfectly and he will succeed because God's spirit will be upon him. This is what verse 2 goes on to say. Look at verse 2 about this king. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And this king, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This should, this greater David, will be one who rules with wisdom, with understanding, with counsel, with might. He will have knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, he will actually delight in fearing the Lord. Imagine being the first hearers. You have, they have seen and kind of experienced enough kings over the centuries. They bring out their list of kings and say, Nope, none have done it. Who can actually do this? But where all kings fail, this should of Jesse will succeed. And he will not just rule and judge like the king of the world. He will judge in a way that only God can judge. Look at verse 3 and verse 4. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked, the perfect king. No, he will not judge by what he sees, for eyes can deceive. He will not uh, judge based on worldly counsel, because that can fail. But he will judge as one who can pierce into the hearts of each and every one. And he will judge with perfect righteousness. No, how we too long for this kind of ruler, isn't it? But um, to one who can see fully into all our hearts, and know all our needs, and care for us, and set justice on the wrong, and give cover for the for the needy. That was what everyone longs for. But who can get such a king, ruler, or government? But those who look to this king will find it because verse 5 it says, this king, righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Not only is he perfect, this king is also powerful enough to establish a kingdom because of who he is, a perfect world, one that no other kings could ever achieve, even in the best in history. For the sheer reality of us humans, our limitations, our weaknesses, our mortality, tells us it can't happen. You can't get a king like that and rule in a perfect world with imperfect people in it. So how will he actually do this, and how will this perfect world actually look like? Look at um, verse 6 to 8 with me as Isaiah described how a perfect world actually looks like. Look at verse 6. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and their yelling together, and the child will lead them. The cow will feed with bear, the young will lie down together, lion will eat straw like the ox. Infants will play near the hole of the cobra. Young children will put their hands into the viper's nest. You see the picture of the perfect world? It's a perfect picture of sheer impossibility. What picture does this perfect kingdom or world look like? What picture comes to you when you look at verse 6 to 8? What comes to you? Perfect Disneyland, isn't it? You know, perhaps the, the lions and the, the, the bears can even dance and sing with the children. 
that a world with no natural enemies, wolf and lamb live in the same place, the child can lead the calf and the lion, you know, the, the lion eating straw, infants playing near the hole of the cobra. Well, this is the picture that everyone would love to have. In fact, Christmas is a time where this kind of movies will, will appear. But that's perhaps why adults want to bring children to Disneyland or even go there themselves, isn't it? People would pay money to escape the harsh reality that the world is not like that. Or perhaps in an easier way is if we can't go for Disneyland holiday, we, we can have our potato chips and some few good movies in front of the couch. And they will at least do some job for us. We would long to have a perfect world like that that can only come in animations or paid stuff dressed in big, you know, stuffy animal uh, creatures. But here, Isaiah is actually not talking about Disneyland. It hasn't happened, isn't it? The picture that actually comes to mind when the first hearers listen, it's not a Disneyland, but actually Eden land. Or should we call it the Garden of Eden? That when they look at this, it's not kind of an imaginary thing, but they know that such a world once exists. Then this world, God is understood and recognized as the creator. And God, under God, humans are made to rule and represent God so that the rest of creation are under the authority, under the care of humans to flourish. That was meant to be the perfect world. Eden was that perfect world. But the first human sin and everything came crashing down. They decided, well, we do not want to be under God. We want to be God. And so they listened to the creatures and they decided to rebel against God and things go south after that, since Genesis 3. Now history, in fact our own experience, will tell us that this has not changed ever since, isn't it? That creation continues to rule over us. We continue to fear creation. When the economy uh, crisis comes, we kind of tremble. But we can sit at a coffee table and argue whether God exists. Because the world is our God, and God is kind of our subject of knowledge that humans can conjure up. So as Isaiah proclaims to his hearers, including us, verse 6 to 8, the wolf will live with the lamb, the calf and the lion, the yearlings together, and a little child will lead them. He's not painting kind of a Disneyland picture of dream world or perfect world. Isaiah is describing a restoration of everything that had gone wrong, a restoration back to how God had intended creation to be, to be perfect. All creatures, mighty or tender, will once again be under the rule of humanity. Now, even a child, not by physical strength, but by authority and by order, can lead a calf and a lion. Infants can play next to the house of deadly cobras. The shoot of Jesse, the promised perfect king, will rule and humans will represent God to the world. And the image, the lion where it's straw like the ox. What is it telling us? That killing for survival is no longer necessary. The survival of the fetus is not going to happen because that's not how the world works in God's original intent. So look at verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters 
cover the sea. All this will happen because the knowledge of the Lord will once again rule in humanity as waters cover the sea. There will be peace, there will not be strife, there will be justice, not injustice, there will be order and not disorder. And the perfect world as God had intended, of which the Garden of Eden had represented, will once again happen under the shoot of Jesse, the greater King David, anointed King, the Christ that we say for Christmas. The earth will be filled the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea, and on that day, there will be a perfect gathering around the perfect King in His perfect kingdom. But now we have to ask the question is, how will the perfect king actually bring imperfect people into the perfect world? Who will be in, who will be in it and how will it actually happen? That's where the rest of the passage for today points to us. Look at verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. His resting place will be glorious. The king will raise a banner and draw all people into it. You'll not be one of kind of particular one race or just Israelites, but for all people groups, look at it. It will not just be for people of Israel, but regardless of race, language, nationality, it'll be available to all because the nations will rally to him. And people all over will draw to his glorious resting place. Look at verse 11. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the surviving remnant of his people from Assyria and from all over the place. The king will bring those who belong to him back to himself. No matter how far they have been scattered to the corners of the world, as Isaiah puts in verse 11, the king will gather his people from the place, the land of their ancient enemies. God's people will come in from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, Babylonian, Hanaf, from the islands of the Mediterraneans. And verse 12 goes on, He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exile of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. The people of God, Israel, which is actually the northern kingdom, and Judah, the kind of the southern kingdom, and all nations who were scattered will all be gathered to him. And look at verse 13. Ephraim, what is Ephraim? Ephraim is one of the tribes. It's actually another name during this time to describe Israel, the northern kingdom. So when you say Ephraim and Judah, it's talking about Israel and Judah, the, the two um, nations that, has, uh, that have, was once under David. So verse 13, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish. Judah's enemies will be destroyed. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. So since the time of Solomon, the son of David, the kingdom has separated to north and south, and they have never been in good terms. They have fought wars, they have been bitter brothers. But here, when the shoot of Jesse comes, who else can do this except David, isn't it? The greater David. The two bitter brothers will be reconciled because Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not be hostile towards Ephraim. And those who are against the king and his people will be destroyed. Furthermore, verse 15 says, The Lord will dry up the guff of Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anyone can cross over in sandals. No, what, what's the guff? The guff of Egypt, the river of Euphrates, these are the overflowing ancient waters that separates nations 
and divides the enemies from each other. But the king, he will come, he will dry up the gulf, break the great river Euphrates and the seven small streams such that his people can walk home on sandals. As the prophet Isaiah proclaimed these words, the people immediately kind of knows the picture because they have seen this picture before in their history books, isn't it? For in time of Moses, in time of Joshua, God has parted the Red Sea, God has dried up the river Jordan so that the people from Egypt as slaves walk through in their sandals into the promised land of the land of Canaan. And why is God going to do the same thing again? Look at verse 16. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came out from Egypt. This is what God will do through his perfect king, the rule of Jesse. He will take down the impossible barriers so that his people can come home. They will walk on sandals. They will cross the impossible just like God did for Israel centuries ago through Egypt to Red Sea. Now they will cross from all over the world to the king's kingdom. So dear friends, who can be such a perfect king? Who can actually reorder the world? Who can actually draw in imperfect people to a perfect kingdom and still keep it perfect? No, it's actually unfair and totally uh, unreasonable for us if we look to a president or government and say, you give me that perfect kingdom, or I'll complain. Because it's impossible for anyone to do that. And if we look at a president and the, and the, and the government and say, ah, good, not good enough, you could do better, we need to realize that they can never do the perfect. Who can do the perfect? Who can bear the weight of this on his shoulders? No one. No one except for the child that Isaiah has promised, which you read for us in Isaiah chapter 9. Let me just read one verse for us. This child will be born on that first Christmas day. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The root of Jesse will be born as a child to carry this impossible task on his shoulders. He will do the works that only God can do and he will bear the names that only God himself is allowed to bear. This child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now God promises this perfect king who alone will bring in and restore that perfect kingdom and reorder the world and then draw people all over the world to him and live in his perfect kingdom. This is the promise that God declared by Isaiah and it's the very reason why Christmas is actually the ultimate place to have a hope for a perfect world. Because it was on that first Christmas, the root of Jesse was born to a dead world. This root of Jesse... This child that was born, we know it, it's Jesus. You know, like a shoot, it can be easy to miss the identity of Jesus. You know, if you only look at his kind of humble beginning, born in a manger, son of a carpenter, kind of small town kid. But yet, the New Testament begins this way, the story of Jesus, the story of Christmas. Let me just read to you Matthew 1, 
This is the beginning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the Christ. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. The Greek word is Christ, which we use for Christmas, isn't it? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac. It goes on a long genealogy. Jesse, the father of King David. And it goes on. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the Christ. Now, by genealogy, Jesus, the Christ, comes from Abraham, from Jesse, and from King David. And in the prophecy of, Je- uh, of Isaiah, this root of Jesse will be different from all other kings because the Spirit of God is upon him. Let me read to you this testimony about Jesus in the same book. Matthew 3 records this account. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter Jesus saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. But then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of water. At that moment, heaven opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So at the baptism of Jesus, it reveals that God's Spirit was upon Jesus. Well, Isaiah also says this, isn't it? That the root of Jesse will care for the needy, for the poor, he will exercise justice. Listen to this testimony about Jesus from Luke 7. Now when a man came to Jesus, they said, No, John who baptized you, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And Jesus replied to the messenger, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Now as the root of Jesse walked the earth, he leaves behind footprints of the glimpse of a perfect world that the rest of the world have never tasted. Now, and Jesus, as he was doing miracles, he was not just trying to kind of prove, I am the king, look, look, look. As he walked and he does miracles, it is because he is the king. And where the king walks, there glimpses of the perfect kingdom, the perfect heaven must appear. So as Jesus does the miracles, it is because he is that king who has to bring in that perfect kingdom. Finally, how will this root of Jesse, how will Jesus the Christ draw all nations to himself? How will he dry up the guff and the river of sin, of rebellion against God, the judgment that we cannot bear by ourselves and still enter his perfect kingdom? This is what Isaiah prophesied earlier. We read this verse 12. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles and assemble the scattered from the four quarters of the earth. What banner will Jesus raise that will draw all people from the four quarters of the earth? What banner will Jesus raise that will end enmity between between embittered siblings? What banner will Jesus raise that will dry up the gaff of sin that prevents us from returning to God? What banner will Jesus raise that can pardon sinners and still exercise justice, righteousness as a king.
And this is the banner, John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. The banner Isaiah talked about, the banner that the king will bear, it's not that flag that flags around that has to only carry one country's flag. The flag, the banner that this king bears is the same for all it bears, blood. That all of us recognize. He bears the banner of his own blood by the death of his cross when he was lifted up and hung dying on the cross He draws all people to himself. The forgiveness is now available regardless of who you are, regardless of your race, your language, your color, your country, whatever. Because you are all mine. Because I bear the life-giving blood. And yours. What they have done in the past, the Lord, the King will say, I will wash it away. The death of Jesus on the cross is the banner that will draw all people and all nations. He dies and we live. The death of Jesus on the cross is the power of God to dry the gulf of Egypt or dry the gulf and sweep across the river Euphrates to remove the sin of rebellious humans like us, that we may wear sandals and walk from death into eternal life. With no effort. Because we can't provide any to walk in. So by the death of Jesus, God's righteousness, His holy anger against our sin are finally resolved. The banner of the cross of Jesus cries out to the world, Sinners, you can come home. Your God and your King will forgive. So the birth of Jesus on that first Christmas begins the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The death of Jesus on the cross raised the banner that offers forgiveness to all who come to him. And three days later, after the banner was raised, Jesus rose from the dead and the empty tomb of Jesus gives a glimpse of how the perfect world will be. It's not fully here yet, but he has begun and you will not stop until the king comes back and completes his perfect kingdom. Dear friends, dear brothers, sisters, do we not already see that people are already being drawn in? Do we not already see that no geographical barriers since the race of the banner No restrictions, no persecutions can stop people from coming to the king. Even the darkest land cannot put a barrier that blocks the light of the banner in so that sinners can come home. The light of the raised banner will continue to shine till the king himself returns and the kingdom established. And that day, even the graves cannot be a barrier because they must vomit out 
those who belong to the kingdom because the first grave has already lost the battle and so will the remaining. So as we kind of conclude, what will the perfect kingdom, a perfect world look like? You know, it will be ruled by King Jesus who has the power to rule perfectly. It will be a perfect world as Isaiah had prophesied where God's king will rule perfectly over his people. His people in turn will once again subdue and care for the rest of creation as God has intended. And it will be the dwelling place for repentant sinners of all nations who turns to the banner of the cross of King Jesus for forgiveness and for entrance into relationship with God. So in the coming weeks, we'll hear more about the King. Uh, King Jesus was born on first Christmas and I encourage us to keep bringing our friends, our families, uh, to come and listen and to know the King. But today, for us, the question is this, do we have a personal relationship with this King? Do we have a personal relationship with this king? Not a religious relationship, but a personal relationship with this king. Have we come to him? Have we cling on his banner for the forgiveness that we desperately need from our diseased bodies and our diseased soul? Because if we have, then we are ready to see the king. But if we have not, we should fear. Because the second time when he comes, he will not be a child. The second time he comes, he will be the judge. So, dear friends, we must respond while we still have time, while the light of the banner shines brightly in our world. As Christmas comes and we have more hopes and our friends have hopes for a better world, we must share the news that this hope lies on their first Christmas. Shall we pray? As we look at Isaiah 11, I'll pray using the song of Isaiah 12. Let us pray. We will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with us, your anger has turned away because of Jesus. You have comforted all who have come to your Son, King Jesus. Surely your Son, Jesus, is our salvation. And we will trust and not be afraid because you, Heavenly Father, have now become our strength and our refuge. So with joy, we will draw waters from the wells of salvation. We will cry out and make known among the nations what Jesus has done. And we proclaim that by Jesus, you have offered salvation to all while there is still time. So dear Father, for us, some of us who have not fully come to Jesus, who have not fully repented, but now we have come with a broken and contrite heart, please forgive the grave sins that we have for our rebellion and sin against you. We're doing wrong, and we do wrong knowing that they are wrong. And sometimes we even try to justify our wrongs. Oh God, forgive us in the name of your Son, Jesus, as we cling to his banner for the cleansing of our soul and our lives, and draw us to Jesus the Christ this Christmas season. For all this we pray for the glory of the one who has raised his banner. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.